Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor and the Student Affairs Program Coordinator in the College of Education at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, we're excited to have Miles Surrett, who is currently the Associate Director for Student Involvement in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University as well as a doctoral student in Clemson's Educational Leadership Program. Miles is also a self-identified watermelon milkshake evangelist, peach snob, and the founder and producer of the Saxa podcast. He's going to talk to us today about his experiences as both a supervisor and supervisee when it comes to issues of identity conscious supervision. Miles, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah, happy to be here. Um, you know, based on that intro, it is um, the saddest season of the year for anyone who really loves watermelon milkshakes. The uh, the season ended on Monday, so um, I forced my five-year-old to go get a milkshake with me that he really wasn't interested in getting, surprisingly. And um, yeah, so, so here we are. So when does the season officially begin again? So it's July and August. So July and August. Just two months, two, two glorious months out of the year. Just made a note for myself because the issue of watermelon milkshakes has come up in my life a number of times weirdly lately. So um, must be a sign that I'm supposed to participate. Yeah. Okay, before we get started, um, while the podcast is focused on current issues, events, and trends, it's also important that we get to know a little bit about our guests as we engage in our work and learning together since we're all more than just our jobs. Miles, would you mind starting by telling us a little bit about how you came to Clemson specifically and what is the source of your peach snobbery? Oh, well, two, two very interesting questions that kind of have the same answer. So um, I uh, am a native of, of uh, the state of South Carolina. I think uh, a term for that that I don't think is intended to be complimentary um, and certainly doesn't sound complimentary is sand lapper. Um, and um, so I, I grew up in South Carolina. Um, my uh, dad is United Methodist minister and so I, I grew up all over the state um, and ended up going to Furman for undergrad and had a really transformative experience there. And um, Later on, decided to go into student affairs. I did my master's work in, in the first five years of my career at George Washington University in DC. And then um, was uh, fortunate to, uh, fortunate to um, find, a, find an opening and um, come down to Clemson. I'm starting my, my fourth year now at Clemson. So um, it's been, uh, I told, told someone this week, it's been uh, two and a half great years and then six months of COVID. Um, so, um, I would not describe the last six months as being like a lot of fun at work. Um, but you know, I, I like to think that, um, at some point we'll get back to, um, we'll get back to being in person and, uh, being able to, um, interact with one another in like a more genuine way. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's my, my, um, South Carolina um, upbringing, um, I think definitely brought me back to Clemson. And then, um, you know, South Carolina peaches are the best. I, I don't think it's really like any more complicated than that. Our, um, my, my dear friend and colleague, Erica Lee, who uh, produces Essay Today, um, is from Georgia. And we have, it's not even a rivalry. It's more like um, a minor, uh, a, a very, very minor uh, type of bullying about my uh, feelings about South Carolina peaches as being um, superior to Georgia peaches um, uh, because Georgia peaches aren't really a thing. It's also part of the discussion, but um, it's all a little bit undermined because actually the best peaches I've ever had are from Alabama. So, um, but yeah, that's, um, that's South Carolina is kind of the, the nexus of both of those, both of those answers. I would not have guessed in responding to that question that you would alienate everyone in the region except Alabama. That, that's <laughs> so. All right. So what about outside of work, Miles? What are some of your hobbies um, and maybe some things you're currently reading, watching, or listening to? Yeah, so I um, am... Uh, 
I really enjoy running. Um, I, I go on a, right now, we've sort of been able to figure it out for the first time really since, since we welcomed our, well, really since we moved to South Carolina, I've really been able to figure out a kind of everyday window that's open for me to be able to, for me to be able to go on kind of a, a short um, jog every night. Um, and I've started, I really need to get a headlamp because I'm running primarily in the dark at night. Um, but that's like very much just like, a, I don't, I don't really run um, competitively. I've never liked races. I ran cross country in high school and um, I also did uh, academic challenge team in soccer. And before those things, it's like exciting. It's like, oh, we're going to go compete and this will be fun and interesting um, and cross country is like no I'm gonna go make myself as miserable as possible for as short a time as possible so um, I don't really like races I like um, just sort of going out and, and, and clearing my head um, but that's something that I that I really um, that I really enjoy and feel very fortunate to be able to do um, also uh, my five-year-old um, is um, uh, very precocious and really loves puzzles um, and isn't as into them right now, but probably my, my favorite, like one of my very favorite things in the world to do is to do a puzzle with them. So I really um, enjoy that. Um, I am currently finishing the um, His Dark Materials um, series, which is um, pretty, um, I think, famous uh, young adult fantasy series um, and, and really, really, really enjoying that. Um, it's been a nice, nice break. I've kind of been rotating between like heavy nonfiction and fiction. Um, so, um, uh, so I think I'm going to transition from that to try again. I've tried once before and gotten maybe 50 pages into Howard's End, Howard's End's a, a people history, a people's history of the United States, um, and really want to make another, uh, another attempt at that. So that's kind of what's on the, what's on the docket. Um, so yeah. Great. Um, do you have a favorite quote that you might be willing to share? Sure. So um, I, I have seen the same sentiment uh, echoed in two different ways. Um, and it's something, I don't know if it's my favorite. That's, the, I don't know, that's a very challenging bar for me. But um, so Sam Rayburn, who is this uh, very, um, sort of legendary member of the House of Representatives, probably, I don't know, maybe the most influential member of the House ever. He was the speaker for 30 something years. Um, and he, uh, not in this exact terminology because he used, a, uh, he used a, a curse word that I won't use, but he said that any donkey can kick down a barn, but it takes a great carpenter to build one. Um, mm -hmm. And I've also seen in uh, John Dugan's um, Cultivating Critical Perspectives uh, Leadership Theory book from 2017 uh, stated similarly, uh, John refers to it as something along the lines of, it's much easier to stay in a place of deconstruction as opposed to taking the step, like the next step forward to build something back. And so that's something that I, that I think about a lot um, related to, related to my work. It's, um, it is certainly a, you know, it is like a kind of critical thinking to be able to, I don't really agree with Sam Rayburn about like, I think the deconstruction of a concept requires critical thinking and insight. Um, but I think that like in the work of student affairs, like telling us that something isn't working doesn't actually help us serve students better um, and to create a more equitable ecosystem for our students to thrive in. Um, I think we have to say, okay, this thing is broken. How do we fix it? And I think that that next step is a much more um, complicated one, but it's something that I really, I try to focus on a lot because I think it's very easy to, um, I do think it's, it's easy to stop at the place of critique. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's way easier than fixing, especially when you're talking about big problems, right? Okay, so I have one more get to know you activity. And this is not based on anything scientific at all. It's just Michelle's idea. But I think when you look at student affairs, there are fall professionals and there are spring professionals. And I think of the fall professionals as people who are very excited to get things going 
um, really just want to bring people together, move forward, you know, this sort of anticipatory enthusiasm. And I think of the spring professionals as being more interested in the reflection stage of our work and what went well, what um, do we want to replicate in the future? What changes do we want to make? So I don't think of it as the fall people love students and can't wait for them to be on campus and the spring people hate students and can't wait for them to leave. That's not my interpretation at all. But when you think about where you get most of your energy around your work, does it fall more in that sort of autumn phase of coming together and getting going? Or do you get more energy from the reflection stage of spring moving into summer and, and lessons learned? I love, I love this question. I think it's a great, I think it's a great insight. And I think it, uh, you know, I think it's one of those, you know, anecdotal things that would be very hard to prove, but I, but I'm with you. I, I, I believe in it. Um, I had never thought of it this way. Um, I'm definitely, I don't know about the, the energy part of it, but from, uh, um, from, uh, like what I think about more and what I like, you know, like I don't, the beginning of the year is like a, a season for me and there's like parts of it that I really like. I really love, even if it's like, just like a tedious thing that isn't particularly, fun to do I really love like a all hands kind of experience I think that there's like a lot of meaning in the sort of like we're all in it together kind of uh, kind of project um, so I, I, I enjoy that but I'm like 100% a spring person I spend um, I go through sort of like a, a, a real period of reflection every spring I've always kind of set out to like have a sort of season of note writing during that time, um, once upon a time when I ran it, when I um, ran an outdoor program, I would write a note to every graduating senior. Now it's a little bit less organized than that, um, but it's definitely that that like reflective piece. I think um, the like history major in me and the sort of like time to pause kind of um, I, that's just like where I that like reflection piece is definitely where I like find meaning in the work and where I sort of define the work in my own head. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a spring person. You know, I hadn't thought about it before. I'm also a spring person um, and also a history major. So I wonder if there's some connection there too, maybe. So thank you. I appreciate that very much. Um, all right, so I have some questions and we'll just kind of go with these. But of course, if you think of other things that you want to um, include or a direction you want to go, feel free. You've talked a little bit about your journey into student affairs and your current position. Can you talk a little bit about your supervision style? Yeah, and, so. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, sir. I was just saying and philosophy. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, there's actually another quote that I, as I was sort of thinking through the, my, my favorite quote question, uh, um, there was another, um, another quote that came, uh, that came to mind for me that I've, I think is a thing that there are a couple of pretty successful folks that I know that, that um, have sort of adopted this philosophy and it's something that I haven't quite like codified, but it's definitely sort of my like working way of thinking about things. Um, so uh, Robert Kennedy um, once said, don't tell me what I can't do, tell me what I can do. Um, and that's also kind of, this is gonna be like um, very uh, sportsy of me. And I, I don't actually like support this team or like them, but a big part of this, like a sort of, I don't know, a sort of known part of the success of the New England Patriots over the last 15 years has been their coaches philosophy is really don't tell me what someone can't do tell me what they can do and then I'm going to put them in a position where they can go and do that thing um, and so there's kind of like hidden gems that have sort of cycled in and out of the New England Patriots uh, football team because of that um, and so that's very much how I, I think about supervision is you know uh, we are socialized I believe 
to think about supervision is this process of identify like evaluating someone and identifying what they do wrong and then trying to correct that thing that is wrong and i don't think that we've like quite gotten to and there may be some stuff on this i'm not sure um but i don't think we've quite gotten you know in our field or many others i think there's a lot of people who believe in strengths quest is this concept and this tool that exists um, but i don't think a lot of people have sort of thought about like okay well how do i actually apply a concept like that like i don't i'm not a big like personality assessment um, person but i do really like the idea and appreciate the concept behind strengths quest of like okay let's not focus on what isn't right about us let's focus on what we can do well um, and i think if we can do that and we can really work to say hey what what can each member of a team that we're a part of um, what do they do really well and then how do we put them in a position to do more of that um, and to bring like really additional added value to our team because of this thing that they, uh, because of this thing that they've done well. Um, so that's really, that's really how I, I like, you know, uh, like anecdotally to myself, I've sort of thought of this as strengths-based leadership. So, um, how do we identify, um, and how do we not, and, and the thing about it that I think is really interesting is that it's, if you change the lens it's not just about like, it's not just about some sort of like um, evaluative process. Like it's not just about like how we're gonna write like the annual evaluation for someone. It's really like changing how you think about a human being. And it changes supervision from being something where it's all depreciative. It's all trying to find what is wrong and then correcting that thing. And I think that there's like a lot of you know, I think supervision has been really wrapped up in notions of like toxic masculinity for a very long time. And I think there's some of that to it, which is like, I have to find this thing that's wrong and I have to have this conversation because doing hard things is inherently and like sort of, you know, uh, taking on those things is this like inherently masculine concept. Um, and what happens if you change that lens from being I need to find what's wrong to I need to find what's right. It really can be, I think, somewhat of a like of a revolution about how you think about a like another person that you work with and how you think about the work that they're doing. If you think about editing as like, you know, I, I think like editing documents and editing concepts, I, I think of that as a huge part of my job as a supervisor. And how do I focus on like not like you know, yeah, like we'll look for if it's a written document or an email or whatever. Yeah, I can look for like grammar and I can look for like rewriting things. But how can I like take what's written on the page and encourage them to do more of like, yeah, this stuff, this is the really right part. Like, how do we do more of this right part when we're communicating? So that's how I that's how I think about and approach supervision. And when you think about how you came to where you are as a supervisor and how you approach the work, are there experiences that you had as a supervisee that helped sort of form and build that and give you the tools to understand what, what you're trying to create when you work with your teams? You know, I think the thing that I've learned um, from being supervised is that you want um, you want the like firmest ground possible to go out and do your work. And there have been times in the past where I have not always felt that way as a supervisee. And that's not, you know, and, and a lot of that I think is out. I think there is a part of that that is outside of the control um, of a supervisor, but I, the sort of correction that I made as a result of that, which as we talk about identity conscious supervision, I think is salient is that, um, you know, I, I really started to, to center based on that, that like what I want someone that I supervise to know without question is that we may have conversations about how to and all of that strength-based supervision piece does not mean that there aren't going to be conversations about how to correct things, right? It doesn't mean that we're like throwing that out the window. If there's a problem, we'll address it. Um, but, um, you know, so if there is feedback that comes, if we have a disagreement about how to do something, um, it, it never, my goal has, has been 
you know, because of that sort of like shaky ground feeling that I've had um, at times and have had in the past um, is to like the baseline for our relationship is that um, I care about you and you care about me and we're both trying to do the best thing that we can possible for students. And I don't want that, that, that should never come into question in any conversation that we have. It should be like a baseline. Uh, it should be a baseline to our entire relationship. And it starts from the, like literally the moment that we review your application and we contact you for phone interviews. Like all of that is inherently built into uh, built into our relationship and it is the, it is the foundation. And so that's something that I've learned, um, that I, that I learned and I, and I adjusted. Now, a thing that I, I have, and it's not really about the supervisee relationship, but I do think that that landed me sometimes in a place of this, like, um, of thinking that that like care was, um, it was sort of this like equality concept, um, uh, and not exactly like fairness, like everybody needs to be treated the same. I, I didn't think of it exactly that way, but it landed me in this place where I, I think because of my natural sort of aversion to discomfort and conflict that I think is really born out of a lifetime of being, um, of holding privileged identities and not having to um, engage um, in conflict and sort of fight for my voice to be heard. Um, that because of that, and also I think because of learning that I've done, I, you know, those things sort of combined and worrying about notions of, of cultural, like cultural taxation, for instance, I think that I um, did not intentionally engage in conversations about disclosed difference in the, in the way that I could have. And I think that it's sort of like, um, like the golden rule inherently is like, and this is something I've been thinking about with like raising my children, the golden rule unto itself is like inadequate. And it, and actually like, I think can be kind of a corrosive concept because like the life experience that I have had and like what I may want and need um, is privileged and it has been advantaged uh, over the course of, uh, you know, the entire American experiment. And um, because of that reality um, that like the way that I want to be treated centers my experience and centers my privilege and it doesn't actually work to um, like correct injustice. And so, um, I think that I, I, I sort of had landed at this place of like, you know, my, my care is enough. And I think that I've had to, I've had to learn that like, um, there is a, there is a bravery. There's a, a, he's a British journalist who's based out of Germany now, but he, he primarily like writes about soccer, but I really, he's also a poet. And I think he's a really um, great thinker named Musa Okwanga. And he, um, he talks about how great writers, um, great writers are brave writers. And I think that that's true of supervision as well, is that like, we have to, um, we have to be willing to um, be brave and to be uncomfortable in order to um, engage um, and, and to um, really help correct injustice as a part of our different like work ecosystems and, and to use the, the power that I hold Well, and that leads really well into the next question. You know, as we look at the world and everything that's going on right now related to issues of identity, power, privilege, and violence, these obviously aren't new issues. They're things that um, maybe are visible in ways that they haven't been in the past, but they're things that some people have had to navigate their entire lives. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of power, privilege, social media, racial battle fatigue, um, and anything else that plays into this idea um, related to identity and exhaustion? And how do you support your staff? Um, how do you maybe talk about those issues outside of any specific moment, but then when incidents emerge or like right now we're kind of in the eye of the storm in terms of, you know, both hope for change and what could be and 
resistance and violence in a number of ways. So um, how, how do you bring that into the workplace? How do you use that um, perspective that you talked about in terms of attending to people around their identity in moments of stress and anguish? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, um, it, it is not something that I have um, ever done perfectly, and I'm not sure I've ever even done well. Um, and I, I have learned a lot. Um, I've learned a lot in the, um, in the time since the, the murder of George Floyd um, and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and most recently Jacob Blake. Um, you know, I, I, I have learned a lot. I think, um, you know, I think that that like privilege that I have about being able to step away from discomfort um, has um, informed um, a kind of privileged disengagement that I think I've had in the past. I don't think that I have ever stopped. I, I think I've always cared for folks in the way that I wanted to be cared for. Um, but not um, in the past thought through and asked the question of like, what, what power do I hold? What privilege do I hold? Um, and how can I actively um, be a, like a vocal presence to give space for conversation and also to be like taking action? Um, I think, um, and that's something that I, that I have become uh, more aware of in the last you know five months or so um, is my own my own voice in that process and my own the way in which I uh, the way in which I leverage the position that I hold um, and the privilege that I hold to, to go out and, and make change um, and I think um, you know a, a couple things that I think about are um, you know in, in, as the last, what um, we'll just sort of call it, um, like the post period after George Floyd's murder and the and the activism that has um, taken place since then, um, is like not expecting anything um, from anyone and understanding that everybody um, is going to is going to engage in the conversation as they feel capable and to not expect anyone to to um, step into the space um, because of an identity that they hold um, and to be very intentional about asking questions specifically um, about how folks are doing and to give space um, for, for that conversation. Um, the, the other thing that I, that I um, have been committed to for, for most of this time period, um, but it's something that I am, am very firmly committed to now is that I think that there were a lot of, and our, and our office made some of these as well, that there were some very specific promises made um, in uh, changes um, that, that um, could and should occur. And there were some more general promises made. Um, and I'm very committed to those specific promises being um, executed to the, to the absolute best of our ability and to continue to find and interrogate meaning in those general promises that were made and to go back and look to see if there are additional things that, um, that, that could be valid that, that have been added. You know, like one set of promises towards equity is a time capsule from that period of time, but it doesn't mean that that has to be some sort of fixed document that can't be updated and, and continue to be reviewed. We just had five new graduate assistants start in our office who weren't a part of that process. And I really want their perspective and their thoughts on and their thoughts on on the promises that have been made and are there additional steps that need to be made or there ways that we've already um, fallen short you know for me it's about like how do we keep this agenda on the table and not have it be reactive um, and not have it be something something tragic has happened um, something that is the the uh, very unfortunate consequence of 400 years of white supremacy in our society uh, has, has forced something to happen um, and a tragedy has happened and now we're going to do something like we're going to scramble to do something. How do we be actively working towards that and never have that agenda um, come off the table? So those are sort of as a, not just as a supervisor, but sort of as a leader of a team, 
um, those are things that I've been that I've been thinking about and working on and and really trying to um, really trying to improve on um, as a as a person as a part of our society but also as a supervisor so you touched on this in in that response I want to give you a chance to add if you have anything um, so when you think about the three levels of or three potential levels of attending to the people around us, how do you attend to people on an individual level? How do you attend to them through supervision? And then what about the organizational level? And again, I think you talked about this a little bit when you said, you know, acknowledging things that have happened not expecting people to show up in a certain way or not show up in a certain way because of identities held. Um, you talked about promises made, promises kept, promises revisited. Are there other things you would add to that? Because I, I really do. I feel like you touched on multiple levels of this, but when you think about individual supervision and organizational attention, how do those things show up if you, if you choose to expand on your your response yeah I mean I think from an organizational level it's really being like how are we how are we always about this how are we always about equity work how are we always trying to create um, create justice within the within the work that we do and so I think that that's that has been sort of the the piece of learning for me um, from a supervision standpoint it's understanding like what cultural taxation really looks like um, and understanding that folks are going to get pulled into, I have, you know, three supervisees who have actively been pulled into committees um, based on identities that they hold that I have not gotten pulled into. And so I have to um, understand and honor the work that they're doing and, and to make, you know, as, as um, much time as possible in order for, um, for them to um, go out and do really good work around our campus and to really um, you know, honor and be the educators that they want to be um, based on, you know, however they, however they view their identity in the world. Um, and so, and from an organization, like from an individual level, and I think that that's, um, I think that that's something that we can all really think through is that, um, you know, oppression and the tragedy that that is born out of oppression and individual decisions that have been made to create a um, oppressive society is not going to happen at convenient times um, you know I, I i wish that i could sit here and say that we have um, seen the last instance of police brutality against uh, against black people um, in our country um, i wish i could say that i just um, sadly um, worry that that is that that is not the case um and and so um i believe that um there will be other instances of injustice that happen in our society and they're not going to come up at times where um it's it's easy for folks to just put work down and so um i think that from an individual standpoint and, th and this is true not just of of what's been going on from a from an advocacy standpoint over the last five months um, this is true of, uh, of a variety of, of situations and as injustice continues to kind of uh, you know hit the shores uh, of our lives and world like waves um, that people are um, going to continue to be um, not uh, live in isolation and our work and our lives are um, too complicated like are intertwined in, in ways that are far too complicated and so from an individual standpoint um, I, I really actively try to model and to create a culture where asking for help is seen as a uh, is asking uh, is seen as a source of strength um, and it's not seen as a weakness in our work and that um, if, if someone is struggling um, and understanding that, um, that um, when we live in an oppressive society, that struggles are, are um, perhaps more likely for folks who, uh, who are oppressed by our society, 
um, that, uh, that those struggles may be, you know, there's a possibility that those struggles may be, um, more frequent that, um, asking for help and actively as a supervisor, actively offering help, um, is not seen as someone falling down on their job. It's seen as someone taking care of themselves and, um, and trying to create a culture of care around that. How do you do that for yourself as you're in the middle of, um, you know, showing care for others? How do you role model that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I think some of it are that, you know, we have like little simple things that we do, like, um, you know, setting a good example about how we, how we work after hours or don't work after hours, um, is a, is a thing that I think about, um, and that's something that I, that I, um, that I actively try to do in a model, um, for our team as, as best as I possibly can. Um, you know, I think some of it, I, I think I, I've learned it, um, it has not been the like easiest last 18 months, um, it, for me and my personal life. And, um, I, I have, um, I've been really open about that. Um, and I think that it's, it's really challenging for us to say that, um, it's really challenging for us to say like, ask for help and be vulnerable if we're not doing that. And I think that that's a kind of modeling that, um, I think that that's a, a kind of modeling that we all have to do. And I think that the struggles, um, the struggles in my personal life, I think have been um, really instructive for me and really helped me, um, understand the ways in which our personal life can completely um, consume our professional life. There have been times over the last, you know, there have been times over the last year and a half or so where I just, for, you know, one of the few times in my life, I just have not been able to work. I haven't been able to, to um, compartmentalize stuff that was happening in my life compared to how it was, you know, compared to how it was my work. And, and, being really honest about that with folks and not, and not showing that as a source of shame and taking that time, uh, taking that time as needed, um, I think has been, um, I, I, it's not even something that I did intentionally. It was just something that I, like, I simply could not do. Um, but I, but I recognize in retrospect that I think that vulnerability, um, I think that vulnerability was a positive thing and I, it's not something that I, um, regret in any way and that there was a lot of, there's a lot of learning um, through that for me. So. I really appreciate that. And, you know, as you reflecting on your own experience recently, but also further back, if you were to talk with new professionals or graduate students about, you know, how do, how do you communicate to your supervisor? What, what you need, what your expectations are. Do you have guidance? Do you have, you know, some reflection points that they might consider as they're either navigating current relationships or anticipating, you know, the future and moving into new roles? Um, how do you have that conversation with your supervisor? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think it's, um, to me, it's the, it, it is, you know, we can't anticipate the things that might come up in our life fully. Um, and I, I feel very fortunate since I've been at Clemson. Um, but I mean, throughout my career, you know, I, I found a real culture of understanding related to, um, related to issues in our, in, in my personal life. Um, but I think it's important um, as best as we possibly can to, you know, set clear, clear expectations with supervisors from the beginning. Um, and, and it's really, you know, and that is, I think really, um, I think it's really hard to do um, because we just don't know what's going to happen. You know, people say that sometimes like setting clear expectations is this like sort of you know, like miraculous, easy thing, but our, our lives change and our work changes. And as these things evolve, I think it, I think it becomes more complicated. So I don't, 
there's not something like formulaic there that I think um, that I think is um, that I think is important. Um, but what I think you can do at the beginning is to is to say like is to sort of say from the from the get go this sort of like ask for help kind of mindset and to establish that early. I think that that's the thing that you can say right from the beginning of any work relationship. Where I think you can say, um, you know, I'm going to put you know, I'm really excited about this work. I'm going to put my best self into it. Um, if there's a moment that comes where I need help, I'm going to ask for it. And I'm going to recognize that like asking for help is ensuring that what's really important about our work and supporting our students is getting done. Um, and it's not, uh, it's not some sort of, you know, but I, I think to just say that early on is that like, I'm going to do good work. I'm going to put my best foot forward. Um, I'm really committed to this work and I will ask for help if I need it. And I think if you say that and, and then you follow through with those things that I think that that, um, creates an open line of communication, which I think is just, I think that that's the biggest part about it is that if something happens in your life, that if you need to make that call or send that text message or has happened for me a couple of times, walk over to your supervisor's office, um, and ask for something that you feel you want people to feel comfortable that they can do that reflexively and they're not worried about what the response is going to be. You want people to feel comfortable saying I need help. Um, and, um, so I think that as a, as a new professional, I think that that's a, probably the best advice I can give. So have the conversation and then revisit the conversation as needed. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and you started in part of your answer, you started to address this, but, I, when I originally crafted this question, and so this interview is part of a, a series on the topic, I had, um, what suggestions do you have for new supervisors about attending to um, supervisees and staff teams? But one of the other guests said, you know, it's not just new supervisors. And I think that's really important because when we supervise over a period of time, we think, okay, we've got it down. You know, this is, I, I know how I supervise, this is what you get. And so maybe in some ways it's even more crucial for experienced supervisors to think about how they um, build those teams and, and show care and not just assume, well, people know how I work now. So do you have suggestions, not only for supervisees about communicating needs, but um, things, specific things that supervisors can do to foster that? And you, you've already alluded to, you know, talking about it and being receptive when people reach out. Are there other things you've done or you've seen other people do that you might suggest people consider? Well, you know, I referenced this earlier, but I think the, the, the most powerful thing that someone can do is modeling that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about a time in your life where you've needed to ask for help. If you know, hey, this person's done this too, whether it's, you know, um, you know like I, I recently had a, like a family health issue and my current supervisor had experienced something very similar in the past, like since I've worked for him. And I knew that like, hey, he's gonna be, like I knew that he was gonna be responsive to it because I had seen him do it before. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there, you know, like we think, we talk about modeling, but like when you are like in it, when there's like a moment of crisis in your life and you know for sure that like, I've seen this person do this too, it's gonna be okay. That is about as reassuring as it gets. Um, where that's like a, not another thing that you need to worry about. Um, and I, and I'm a hundred percent with, you know, previous guests who shared, um, this is not just for new, this is not just for new supervisors. Like anybody who has gotten to a point where they think that they've got supervision needs have figured out needs to like spend a day just thinking, um, because this is like this, like any relationship is a humbling process and I, I think it's just a lifelong journey of reflection and tweaking and, and trying to get better in every moment. I, I think, you know, I, I think very differently about supervision than I did five months ago, six months ago, a year ago. Um, and, you know, and that's not just because of the sort of dual pandemics of 
like the viral and the racial pandemic that we that we have been experiencing it, it's also like a constant process and so um, yeah i think that i think that that regular review is really important is there anything else that you want to add or anything you thought i might ask you about that you want to talk about um kind of as we move into wrapping up the conversation what did i miss gosh i i don't i don't think that there's anything major um i think that i like always think about is um in our work how do we define our own happiness and to not um and to not worry about status and to not worry about um and to not worry about perception um or sort of the like interpersonal mush of like somebody else is upset about something and i care about them so i also need need to be upset um i think that that i i think that if folks can can really focus on hey do i like this work is this work meaningful for me let's take all like let's take the word should out of all of our work i should have i should get paid more i should you know have a higher status i should be mad about this i should you know if we can pull that out of our work and, and of course there are valid reasons to have those concerns and i'm not trying to i'm not trying to say that those things don't matter but um as we're thinking about like how you interact and, and work in a relationship with somebody else if you can focus on like hey do i enjoy this work is this work something that i look forward to doing and, and take that word should out i think that that can really change people's um, can really change people's thinking about their work and their own like review process. Just jotting a note that is really helpful. I also think it's incredibly timely. Um, given where we are right now, thinking about what is it that I value? What is it that um, I aspire to for myself rather than that constant either comparison or like you said, getting pulled into other people's um, struggles with sorting things out for themselves. So I really appreciate that, Miles. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, okay, so before we go, in an effort to leave things on a note of hope, which I think you did in your last comment, but we'll add to that, supplement the hope um, right now with the idea of bringing some positive energy kind of into the world, into the conversation, would you be willing to share a couple of things that are bringing you joy right now? And it can be in work, it can be in life outside of work, whatever comes to mind. Yeah, so my, my five-year-old uh, has started uh, kindergarten. Um, uh, started kindergarten this week and his his journey through uh, through daycare was was sort of part of that personal struggle that I mentioned and um, it has been very very cool he's not going to school very often he's primarily doing e-learning but to see him in like a formal like academic learning environment which he's never been in before um, has just been really really cool um he's he's always been i mean he has just like this incredibly active um fun really interesting brain and to see it like light up now in like a formal setting and there's certain parts of it that he's really struggling with but um but he like gets up and wants to go do his e-learning in the morning and he um, gets to go to school on thursdays and i think starting tuesday and thursday next week and he's just like, I mean, he like runs in the door. Um, and so that has been, that has been really cool. Um, that's been really cool to see. Um, and, um, so that's definitely been, um, that's definitely been, um, a source of joy recently. I'm going into the office tomorrow, um, for the first time. I, I literally have not been in my office since March. Um, and, uh, I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, I think the, the question of returning to campus and um, related to COVID is, uh, I think, an incredibly complicated one. Um, but I personally am really looking forward to, like, we are not back at Clemson yet um, if, we, if we do end up going back. Um, but I personally am really looking forward to just, like, being back in the office. There's just, like, uh, I have some, like, books that I'd like to see. 
<laughs> so, and just like being back there and I, and I hope like actually setting eyes on my colleagues from, you know, six distance away and wearing a mask, I, I'm even just like looking forward to that. So um, those are some, those are some things that I'm, that I'm um, excited about that's coming up. And my, my two-year-old is just an absolute, just an absolutely wild, hilarious child and um, is like already so funny and um, and uh, I haven't seen her in like five days. Um, she's she's been with her grandparents, and so I'm super excited to to see her. And um, there's just been some like really quiet moments of um, well, everything in my house is loud, but I mean like quiet for me internally with all the noise around of like just enjoying my um, enjoying my children and my family recently. So that's been those are those have been some positive things for sure. Well, and that's really beautiful how like in, in those comments, you just role modeled and walked your talk. You know, you talked about um, over the course of this interview, some of your own struggles, but then also along with the vulnerability, you, I mean, I wrote down what you said about, is this work something I look forward to doing? And the fact that you're excited about going to your office tomorrow and seeing apparently books first and colleagues second. I don't know what that <laughs> is. Um, I just think that's great. And I, I appreciate that. I think that um, there are moments of joy all around us. We don't always slow ourselves down enough to catch them. And it sounds like you've been doing that. So thank you very much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you also for just taking time to have a conversation with us um, on your journey to go pick up your daughter. I know there's a lot of turmoil in the world right now and the fact that you were willing and able to spend some time and have this conversation means a lot. Um, I just wanna thank you again, Miles. I appreciate you very much. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This was, this was fun. It's good to, good to be able to just think you through it and preparing a little bit. It was a really good, uh, really good practice for me. Wonderful. Well, today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA, and we thank them for their support. Additionally, the show would not be possible without producer Erica Lee, who coordinates everything and, in fact, even typed up the script for me this week. Thank you so much, Erica. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day. <laughs>